This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on depression in adults. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. In people aged 18 to 44 years, depression is a leading cause of disability and premature death. Yet it is all too frequently misdiagnosed and mismanaged. So how should we diagnose and manage adults with depression? To tell us, we have on the line Professor Dean McKinnon, who is Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioural Sciences at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, Baltimore. And importantly, Dean is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Dean, you're welcome. Let's start by asking, what exactly is this condition? So depression is a big term. Uh, It applies both to a symptom that's very common, but also to a a medical disorder. in which uh, depressed mood is, is a common but not universal symptom, plus a uh, handful of other symptoms as well. What distinguishes the illness from the symptom is that uh, the illness is more uh, persistent and it's severe enough to cause severe suffering or debilitation, and sometimes it can even lead to suicide. Okay, thank you. And just to follow up on that, when you say persistent, is there a a time span that you could put on that? Do you mean persisting for days or weeks? And if so, how many weeks? So the the minimum number of weeks to to make a diagnosis is two, but in practice, people tend to have a lot uh, longer course of depression um, before they even seek uh, treatment. You know, generally we see people stuck in a depression for weeks, months, and then occasionally longer than that. Okay, thank you. And let's move on to assessment and diagnosis. How how do you make an assessment of somebody who you suspect has depression and ultimately come to a diagnosis? It depends on the context. Uh, People who come to see me already know they have depression. For people in more general practice where there's some question about it, uh, the uh, physician may notice that the patient uh, appears sad or appears not themselves. They may complain about poor sleep or low energy. They might come right out and say that they're feeling like life's not worth living or that they're contemplating suicide, uh, in which case it's a more urgent matter. A lot of uh, clinicians in the community do uh, a screening test as well, which uh, can be an important tool when in a short clinic visit to identify people who may be suffering from depression. When when making an assessment, what specific symptoms should you should you ask for? I wonder. So the the symptoms that, that comprise the syndrome or the the uh, major depression uh, include a change in mood. Um, it can be a depressed mood, but oftentimes it's it's an anxious mood or a, an irritable mood or even just a flat mood, feeling like you have no emotional responsiveness. And it's accompanied by another core symptom, more often than not, the inability to enjoy things or become motivated by things that normally you find meaningful or satisfying. In addition to one or both of those, patients with depression typically have problems with sleep, either too much or too little, uh, with appetite, again, either too much or too little, uh, with low energy, with uh, diminished uh, 
self-attitude or, or self-esteem, uh, with difficulty thinking or concentrating or making decisions, and with uh, thoughts about death, morbid thoughts, even thoughts about suicide. Occasionally, people will also have uh, what we call psychomotor agitation or retardation, where they uh, either just feel like their their muscles are not responsive if it's the retardation or agitation where they just can't sit still, they're restless and uncomfortable. Okay, thank you. Um, tell us about common pitfalls that uh, healthcare professionals make in assessing somebody with depression or, or in making the diagnosis. The, the main differential diagnosis between depression and other things is, is usually the depressed mood. So depressed mood is a fairly common condition. People feel low or they feel demoralized or discouraged for a lot of reasons in life. Because they use the same term depression to describe it, it can cause some confusion in the clinic and it tends to lead to uh, prescriptions when sometimes psychotherapy is the, is the better, out, uh, better solution. Again, the, the, the way to differentiate them is by the persist, persistence and by the, uh, the fact that they're accompanied, the, the, the low mood is accompanied by uh, other symptoms and causes significant distress or, or impairment. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's move on to management. Um, how should healthcare professionals typically manage a, a typical patient with depression? So it depends a bit on how severe the depression is. Um, if a, a person is slowed down or, or less efficient or has to push themselves or struggle more to uh, be able to uh, uh, get through their day, that might be a, a low or, or less severe kind of depression compared to someone who uh, basically can't get out of bed, uh, is thinking about suicide a lot, uh, is uh, uh, not taking care of their their daily needs. So in the former case, if it's less severe, the um, availability of psychotherapy might mitigate towards referring somebody for talk therapy, in which case uh, that might actually be effective without adding medications. However, on the other hand, medications are effective for all sorts of depression. They're more effective for the more severe forms of depression, though, where psychotherapy is less effective. Psychotherapy tends to be less available for a lot of people than, a, than medication. So I think medication tends to be the first recourse. Okay, thank you. And um, what about recent advances in management? What should doctors and other healthcare professionals know about, about recent advances in management? There are new things uh, out there uh, for treatment-resistant depression. Uh, when people are not responding to the standard antidepressants, there are about two dozen different antidepressants on the market, and they're all about equally uh, likely to help a person uh, a priori. Um, but for those who don't respond to a couple of antidepressant trials and, and or to some augmentation with alternative medications, uh, then uh, there are things out there like transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, which is a uh, kind of an, some people would say it's electroconvulsive therapy light. It, it stimulates electric activity in the cortex, uh, and if done repeatedly every day over a period of four to six weeks, it can bring relief to some people who haven't responded to medications. Um, ketamine is also out there. You'll certainly be reading about ketamine or hearing about it. 
again, it's right now it's pretty much reserved for uh, treatment resistant cases. And I think the jury's still out on just what its role might be in the future. Okay, thank you. Well, let's take these various things you mentioned one by one. First of all, you said kind of a reasonable trial of antidepressants. Um, How long would that be, would you say, should somebody be on an antidepressant before you kind of say that this isn't working? Well, let's back up and start with selecting an antidepressant. If you're in primary care practice, for example, you might have a couple of favorite antidepressants that you're familiar with that you know the dosing, you know, what's an effective dose and what's not an effective dose. And that's fairly useful to, to have a few of those in your toolbox. Once you get someone started on antidepressant, there, there may be a period of time to ramp them up to a therapeutic dose. You want to allow a week or two for that. And, and then beyond that, once the person is on an antidepressant at a therapeutic dose, you would hope to see some at least slight signs of progress in the first few weeks, but you don't expect to see a full, complete resolution of the depression for six to eight weeks. So if you're seeing a partial response after two or three weeks, uh, you want to stick with it. Maybe increase the dose if you have some room to move on it, but uh, stick with that medication at least until you've given it a full trial. Okay, thank you. And and um, and for one antidepressant didn't work, one standard antidepressant didn't work. Is there any worth kind of trying another one? Actually, there is. Yes, and so the the the, the data show that about one in three people, or maybe a little more than that, uh, are likely to respond fully to the first antidepressant they see. But uh, if you then if that doesn't work and you try another one you increase the odds that you're going to find an effective solution. And after you've done maybe three antidepressant trials, uh, you can count on maybe 60 to 70% of people having a full response. I would add again that that the the data are better for antidepressant response in the more severe depressions rather than the less severe depressions, which often overlap with more of that depressed mood demoralization that I mentioned earlier. Okay, thank you. And you also mentioned augmentation. Is that with things like lithium or other medications? When you say augmentation, what do you mean? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned lithium. It's it's the one that it's, it's an old medication, uh, been out since the middle 20th century, although not in wide use until uh, probably the 1970s. And it's primarily used for bipolar disorder, but it does have some antidepressant properties, and it's probably about the best uh, supported augmentation strategy, meaning if your antidepressant is working partway and you want to try to boost its effectiveness, you could add lithium. Now, the caution is that psychiatrists tend to learn how to use lithium, but most most other clinicians uh, don't tend to have much practice with it and is a bit of a tricky drug to use. Outside of a psychiatric practice, uh, you're more likely to go for uh, one of the second-generation neuroleptics if you're adding something. They do provide some fairly rapid symptomatic relief, and some of them um, are uh, uh, found to have some antidepressant properties. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to some of the other advances you spoke about, one of which is transcranial magnetic stimulation. Any side effects of that, I wonder? Very minor. Uh, You might get a headache. It may be a little bit uncomfortable while you're doing. You have to sit still for 20 to 30 minutes. in a room with a lot of clicking noises going on, which can be kind of boring. 
But other than that, no, there's no significant consequences. I mentioned electric convulsive therapy earlier, which is for the most severe cases. And uh, compared to electric convulsive therapy, it's really uh, much, much easier to tolerate. Okay, thank you. And and uh, moving on to ketamine then. Uh, I believe that I've read a little bit about that and it talks about a, a faster response time. Is, is that correct? Or That's what they say. Uh, ketamine supposedly works much more rapidly than antidepressants. Um, and I've met a few people who've had a pretty good response to it, albeit transient. It doesn't promise long-term effects at this point for reasons I think that no one's quite explained yet. Uh, it does, in some cases, seem to produce uh, a lightening of the depressed state uh, for at least a period of weeks in people who are responding to it. But I've also met a fair number of people who haven't had any response to it or any positive response to it. Okay. And any side effects with ketamine, I wonder? I think they're mostly just acute. Ketamine is an anesthetic agent, and it can cause some bizarre mental experiences while you're taking it. But I don't think there tend to be any longer-term consequences from it. Okay, thank you. And um, ketamine, is there a potential for it being abused? I wonder, are there any cases of, of that having happened? Well, certainly ketamine has a, is a drug of abuse when it's out there in the, in the community. It's been abused. I'm not aware of any uh, diversion of the ketamine used for antidepressant treatment uh, at this point. Ketamine, one limitation for ketamine treatment is that it... Uh, uh, it can be administered intravenously. Uh, it can also be administered intranasally. So obviously you can't do intravenous treatment at home. You have to go into a clinic and actually be under observation while it's happening. Intranasal form is still emerging. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if we really know how uh, safe and effective it's going to be in the longer term. Okay, thank you. Um, and, and more generally about um, management of depression, what would you say are the common pitfalls that you see in its management? Most common pitfalls tend to be uh, underdosing of antidepressants or sticking with an antidepressant that's ineffective when the patient's not responding. Some of those uh, kinds of problems can be alleviated by following the patient a little more closely when you're starting them on an antidepressant. Try to respond to those or to uh, uh, increase the dose to, to a more therapeutic level. And then, you know, I see a lot of people who have had a poor antidepressant response and I, they have stuck with, you know, a, a, mo a small or modest dose for uh, much longer than they should have, or they, they just haven't had a good enough response and probably should have been switched to a different medication long ago. Because remember, the, a minority of people are going to respond to any given antidepressant. Okay, thank you. Um, moving to the other end of the scale, stopping antidepressants. Tell us about that. When, uh, if, if ever, should you stop and, and, and how should you stop? So you're assume, assuming a person has had a, a, an antidepressant response, they've, they've, their depression has responded to medication. I think the, the books will tell you maybe three to six months you can think about stopping it. I tend to go for a year before I even think about stopping it. And then uh, stopping it, I would tend to recommend doing it gradually and with fairly close supervision of the patient uh, just to make sure that the depression isn't hiding there, you're ready to spring out again once the medication goes, uh, which is not an uncommon phenomenon. 
there are patients for whom I would never recommend stopping an antidepressant um, unless it's not working anymore um, because their depressions have been so severe. They've led to hospitalizations or suicide attempts where they've just been so difficult to treat in the first place that, you know, finding a, uh, an effective medication hasn't, hasn't been an easy process. And in those patients, I would just recommend trying to prevent the recurrence of depression rather than, than taking the risk of going off the treatment. You know, in the risk-benefit analysis, you know, if the medication is not causing any problems or side effects, the risk is all on the side of stopping the medication uh, if it seems to be keeping the depression away. With many antidepressants, you have to taper not just because you're concerned about depression recurring, but because there can be a discontinuation syndrome. Uh, patients who stop the antidepressant suddenly can have a fairly uncomfortable feeling, almost flu-like symptoms or malaise, or sometimes you hear about uh, uh, brain zaps in people who've stopped some medications. So uh, be wary of those and taper the person gradually off the medication. Okay, thank you. And and by gradually, is that a, over a period of weeks or roughly what time scale? Tapering a person off of a medication because it's not working, uh, I would probably go more quickly, but while I'm also advancing a new medication, so I'd be doing a cross taper. For someone who's, who's being taken off medication because they have possibly had enough uh, duration of treatment, again, the, the, the time course depends on how worried I am about the depression recurring. And I'll, I'll go slower, maybe over the course of weeks uh, or a month, if I'm con- really concerned about recurrence. If I'm less concerned about recurrence, I might go over just a course of a week or two. Um, and in the hospital, I tend to go much faster too. Okay, great. Uh, thank you. What, what else should I ask you about? What have we missed? Are there any other common questions that you get asked that I haven't asked? So another pitfall in diagnosing and treating depression is that uh, depression can be uh, associated with manic depressive illness or bipolar disorder. So when patients don't respond uh, well to treatment, uh, it sometimes may be because they they really have uh, uh, more of a tendency to manic and depressive episodes, to mood instability. And antidepressants uh, don't have a great effect on many patients with, uh, with bipolar disorder. It can, they can destabilize the mood. Uh, so you end up with more cycling and more depression. I think for the, a person in primary care uh, or an internist, uh, somebody who's not a specialist in, in mood disorders, it's important to know when to refer to an expert. And I would say that after you've tried two or three uh, medications, or if the patient is worsening to the point of dangerousness uh, with suicidal thoughts or unable to work at all and thus putting their livelihood at risk, you know, then... And, Referring sooner rather than later to a psychiatry specialist uh, is probably a good idea. Okay. Thank you very much, Dean. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant illnesses. Thank you once again. <laughs>